Hello, I'm Joshua Groisberg, a history enthusiast. And I'm Jacob Friedman, founder of People's Big News. And this is Gen Zero's Talk Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful analysis and maybe some comedy along the way. We're pleased to welcome Kevin Levin, independent historian, educator, and writer of Civil War Memory on Substack in the book, Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. Both Joshua and I had the privilege of taking his AP U.S. History course at our high school, so it's a little bit of a trip down memory lane for us. Mr. Levin, it's great to see you, and welcome to the show. It's great to be with both of you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me. No problem. So first off, what got you into the history profession and uh, education? Wow. Okay. That, that's going to take us back a little bit. So, you know, it's funny because um, I kind of backed into education. It was totally, I guess, unintentional. Uh, I, you know, I was, I was not a very motivated student in high school. In fact, um, I think I barely graduated. I just wasn't intellectually curious at that time. And it took me a couple of years to really find my footing, if you will. And and it was during my undergraduate years, I ended up taking a philosophy class of all things. And that sort of, you know, that got the juices flowing, if you will. And um, I ended up majoring in philosophy and history as an undergraduate. And I went on to do graduate work in philosophy at the University of Maryland. And that's where I started teaching. Um, but I didn't pursue a PhD. And so there were a couple of years after I finished my master's that I kind of um, was trying to figure out what to do. And I ended up answering a job ad for uh, a high school position in all of all places, Alabama, teaching philosophy. And that's kind of where I got my feet wet, at least teaching on the high school level. And I ended up moving to Virginia uh, in 2000. And that's where I started teaching history and American history. And it was also you know, living in central Virginia um, and sort of developing an interest in the 19th century, the American South and the Civil War, that was really a perfect place to teach. And so I was so surrounded by history. But that is really, I would say, you know, beginning in 2000, right around that time where I really started thinking that teaching high school um, was for me. I mean, it's, I mean, it's funny how those things kind of play out given sort of my overall trajectory coming out of high school. But, you know, it's, it's been a great life. I love teaching. I love sort of working in, in that capacity with students and the, the broader public when I have the opportunity. So, um, so yeah, uh, I'm not teaching right now, unfortunately, although I'm doing a lot of other, other things, but, um, but sort of teaching is definitely in my blood. Right. And um, a topic that you've been teaching a lot about and that you've been doing a lot of work on is the legacy of the Civil War and of the Confederate movement. So uh, a topic you've been speaking about on that issue has been Confederate statues. And yeah. while many Confederate statues have come down in recent years, as you've mentioned, there continues to be a resistance to their removal. Excuse me, you've been tracking this phenomenon on your Substack and Twitter. So could you explain what's driving the resistance to the taking down of these Confederate statues? More specifically, what drives the lost cause myth that you speak about? How does it still hold up in 2022? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, it's a good question. It's a tough question to answer because I think it's complicated. Um, I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is that the whole, that the lost cause narrative, this sort of pro-Confederate narrative that emerged in the years after the Civil War, 
doesn't have the same hold that it that it did just a couple decades ago. I mean, I think it's safe to say that, you know, if you went back, um, you know, into the certainly by the mid 20th century, the, the lost cause was still very much a national narrative of the Civil War. Um, you know, a, a narrative that was appealing to especially white Southerners, but I would say Americans generally, uh, white Americans, I should I should stipulate. Uh, I think in the last few decades, especially coming out of the civil rights movement, I think that's changed. I think our understanding of the war has become more complicated. It has it now acknowledges um, memory of the of, of the of slavery, of emancipation the service of roughly 200,000 black soldiers in the United States Army that fought against the Confederacy. I think a lot of this has, I think a lot of this is now in flux. And I think the lost cause in 2022 is, um, is really a kind of, I think it's still embraced, but I think the number of people who truly embrace its roots are very limited. I think it's very much a generational thing. And I think we're moving away from that. But that's not to say that it's not out there, that you don't find it, um, you know, in, you know, in schools, in other institutions, um, that it's not used for political purposes. I think you certainly see that today in our political discourse. Uh, certainly during the Trump administration, uh, it was front and center in, in many respects. Um, but the monument debate, I think, is, is certainly connected to uh, the history of the lost cause, but it's much more rooted, at least the current debate in the events of the last few years going back to 2015, specifically with the church shootings in Charleston, South Carolina, the murders committed by Dylan Roof um, in that historic black church. And that really served as a catalyst for removing Confederate battle flags um, on public grounds. And also, you know, as a result of that, people then calling for monuments. And then, of course, the events in Charlottesville in 2017. And then, of course, you know, the police murder in, um, in Minneapolis in uh, the spring of 2020. Since then, roughly 113 Confederate monuments have been removed. And I think the, the backdrop is of the monument removals is race relations, right? It is the fact that a narrative of American history that is much more rooted in the history of white supremacy in race has now been allowed to sort of flourish in a way that it, 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 it's never been allowed to, to do so. Uh, and I think that has given voice to a lot of people. I think it has, um, it, it has sort of worked to remind people of the unfinished work of emancipation um, and reconstruction even. And so I think, um, you know, we're still seeing some monuments come down. Certainly the pace uh, has decreased. Um, it's going to be a slow drip, I think, is the best way to characterize it moving forward. Uh, I think I'll just sort of end with this point because I can go on and on. I think certainly the most important sites where Confederate monuments uh, once stood, that's been erased. And so you think of places like New Orleans, Baltimore, um, Dallas, Charlottesville, of course, and the most important site of them all, the former capital of the Confederacy of Richmond, Virginia, Richmond's monument landscape has been completely transformed in ways that just a few years ago, I, I never would have, uh, would have anticipated. Uh, and so I, I am still as a historian of this stuff, 
and someone who's who's led you know scores of tours through uh, through Richmond, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. So it's we'll see how this continues to play out, but it has an energy that I just did not, and a lot of other people I think just didn't anticipate a couple of years ago. Right, and as you mentioned, these events have a legacy that continue to this day with the removal of Confederate statues, but also yeah. a very big part of it is how it's taught to children in school in 2022. Yeah. And there are great divisions in education currently, specifically for American history and especially around the Civil War and its legacy. Given your background, what do you believe has caused these cultural differences? And what do you envision for the best possible teaching of this expansive and uncomfortable history? Yeah, you know, that, again, that's another really important question you're getting at. I think, again, you know, I always approach these questions, uh, I think, first and foremost, as uh, a student of history. And even when it comes to, and I urge other people to sort of, to the best of their ability, you know, at least take this approach as well. Um, and what I mean by that is to acknowledge that as divisive as this current debate is about history education, um, it's nothing new, right? I mean, we can go back um, to any part of the 20th century and find uh, debates about how history should be taught, what, you know, at what age, what's appropriate, uh, what kind of overall narrative. Uh, and I think in many ways, the current debate is an extension of those earlier debates because I think at root what the current debate is about is the purpose of history education, right? Is, and I, and I see the sort of divide as follows. I think on one side, I think this is where most conservatives line up. Uh, and that is uh, that history is an opportunity to um, create consensus. In other words, a, a, na a national narrative, historical narrative that glues all Americans together, that, uh, that sort of connects us all together around a shared story that is patriotic, um, that celebrates the founding ideals, say in the Declaration of Independence, uh, a self-celebratory narrative. The problem I think with that is, um, I mean, there are a number of problems with that. I think the, the first one I'd mention is it doesn't acknowledge the way in which history education has evolved. And, that, and what I mean by that is that history teachers are much more sort of committed, I think, these days to teaching their students how to think critically about the past through the analysis of, as you guys remember, and, and, uh, and are studying now primary sources and secondary sources, right? That we now have the ability to think about our classrooms as sort of laboratories in which students can um, play the role of the historian. Um, there's so much more access to, um, you know, uh, course materials, especially primary sources. Uh, and I think that threatens that sort of conservative mindset. And I think the other thing that is that has changed in recent decades, and I think this is also true with the advent of the internet, the popularity of the internet, is that we're no longer, when I was taking, you know, when, I assume when I was in high school in the 1980s, I learned history through a textbook. You know, whether or not I had other documents, I don't remember much. I suspect that was very limited. I suspect that what I learned in my classes was mainly through a textbook that every student going back 20 years before me had used, right? Uh, and it was a matter of sort of reading that textbook and regurgitating it in some form. And I think with the advent of the internet, um, teachers have access to so much more material uh, that's just unimaginable a couple decades ago. 
And that means that other stories now can populate our classrooms, stories that have, for whatever reason, have been downplayed, have been mythologized, have been ignored entirely. A lot of those stories are about uh, groups that have been marginalized, the story of immigrants, the story of African-American, and a lot of those darker chapters of American history that a consensus narrative has trouble with have been allowed to take root in the classroom. And I think that, you know, as, as a historian, as an educator, I think that's wonderful. I think the more stories we can tell, the better. Um, but I think a lot of, you know, especially those sort of social history narratives, those stories about protests, those stories about um, civil rights struggles, right? Um, all of those marginalized groups, as I suggested, threaten that, that sort of, that patriotic narrative. And I think um, what we're seeing today is I think an extension of that. And, you know, it's unfortunate that the rhetoric has become so charged, right? Um, this sort of rhetoric about critical race theory, right? Which, you know, look, the three of us could reflect back on our experience in the AP class, my last, you know, class that I taught. And I don't think critical race theory ever came up once, right? Uh, in fact, I'm not even sure I even knew what critical race theory was when I was teaching your class. I've had to educate myself in the last few years, but apparently this is being taught everywhere, right? Uh, and then of course, the other aspect, the other part of that is um, just the, the popularity of the 1619 Project, right? Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones's project out of the New York Times has completely uh, rattled, um, I think that consensus, consensus narrative crowd um, and rightfully so, you know, it asks us to, um, to shift how we think about the origin stories of, of the United States in ways that are unsettling, um, but I think in ways that can reveal a great deal about our collective past and sort of, again, those stories that um, for whatever reason have not uh, been told, have not been taught in our classroom. So, you know, it is, it feels as if this is something new. The rhetoric is certainly a product of the broader cultural political divide that we've experienced over the last few years, but it, it has a much longer history to it. Well, we're, so we're, you're right. What we're seeing now is definitely not happening in a vacuum. And what we're seeing now with um, different silos over how this um, debate is about education, um, whether it's whether it's the 1619 Project, critical race theory, or you know the Florida's uh, so-called Don't Say Gay Bill, that just right. I think it's just passed. You know, you know the rallying school boards right now, the midterm elections are going to uh, uh, some projections going to be a blowout for uh, yeah. Republican candidates across the country. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think um, Jacob, I, I think you make a really good point um, that this is politically rooted. It's politically motivated, right? We wouldn't be hearing. There's a reason why we didn't hear about you know uh, critical race theory before Trump decided to former President Trump decided to sort of talk about it. And there's a reason why it's, it's, there's a reason why states across the country right now are passing these ridiculous laws because there is an election coming up and there's a lot at stake, right? I mean, we just, um, President Biden just uh, got a new Supreme Court justice. So there's a lot that's up for grabs, I should say. And, you know, this, this is meat for the masses. 
Uh, most people have never read a word of the 1619 Project. Most of the legislators, I suspect, have not read a word of the 1619 Project or could even begin to explain to you what critical race theory is. And, you know, and the, an example of that uh, is Senator Ted Cruz, right, from Texas, who is who grilled um, uh, Justice Brown, um, you know, last week about uh, critical race theory and his own children go to a private school in Houston where this is part of the curriculum. So, I mean, he clearly doesn't see a problem with his own children being exposed to this material. Um, uh, so it's hard not to see it as, um, as just the, the, the politics that we've come to expect, right? It's, it's cheap, but it works. Right, there's this whole ecosystem, self-reinforcing, there's yeah. all these all these articles and all these videos going back into Crystal Rufo and how he dug up critical race theory and tried to yeah. you know spin it. Yeah, kind of yeah. like the Southern strategy, right? I mean, going back to the early 1970s and Republicans sort of figuring out what's the best way to uh, appeal to conservative white uh, Americans who are um, upset with the um, the with, with civil rights, the Vietnam War, et cetera, right? I mean. These things don't happen by accident, right? Um, it's calculated, and I think that's the point you're making, and it's a good one. I do want to ask a follow-up question about um, the nomination confirmation of Katanji Jackson. As of this recording, uh, she was confirmed by the Senate just yesterday. Um, she would be the first um, Black woman to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court in its history. So I'm curious, since you speak a lot about the Civil War and about its legacy and about racial relations to this day, do you think her confirmation has a broader impact or do you think, you know, its impact will be minimal? I think it depends who you talk to. I think, I think certainly, um, I mean, one way to, to answer your question is to just, you know, state the obvious, which is that, um, you know, future history books, future textbooks will include what happened uh, this past week, because I think it is um, an important moment in time, uh, not just, you know, certainly not the first African-American on the court, but the first black woman on the court is, is significant. Um, and it comes at a time when the nation, as we've been talking about, um, has been engaged in a kind of national reckoning about uh, its history, about the, the place of um, racial violence, uh, legalized discrimination, think of the Jim Crow era, um, and then of course police violence and, and race relations, everything revolving around that, that is still part of our everyday existence, right? Uh, in a way in which it just wasn't a couple of years ago. And so I think it's impossible not to acknowledge um, you know, her confirmation without taking stock of the broader national discussion that, that we find ourselves in. It just seems, uh, it seems so obvious. And I think certainly, you know, um, historians always work better when they have a little bit more distance uh, between themselves perhaps and the events in question. So I think certainly as she makes her impact on the court, I mean, that's gonna be, a, I think, a big de a determining factor in um, how we think about this moment. Because of course, remember, uh, her side is still in the minority, right? But I think it's still the fact that she's on the court, uh, that she will you know, issue rulings uh, or opinions, I should say, um, it will give us quite a bit to work with in thinking about the wording she chooses, um, the, the prior cases she cites, 
how that fits into a much broader narrative stretching back to um, whether it's the Civil War, whether it's Reconstruction or the height of, uh, of, of the Jim Crow era. So I think, I think the short answer to your question is it, it, it absolutely matters. Um, there is, in the same way I think you know, was the case when President Obama was elected for his first term in office. Um, but I think it's gonna be much more interesting to see how her time on the court shapes how we think about this history. And that concludes part one of this interview with Kevin Levin. Stay tuned for part two coming soon. And that concludes this episode of Gen Zero Talk Politics. Be sure to join our Discord server, follow us on Instagram at Gen Zero Talk Politics, and on Twitter at Gen Zero Talk Poly with an I, and add or email us to ask your burning questions. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time. <laughs>